You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. It's my honor and joy to bring the Word of God today. I also want to express a special welcome to the kids in the service this morning. I'm glad you're here. I I love singing with you guys, and I love praying with you guys, you guys being here together with us, and now we're going to hear God's Word together. Um, Parents, if you didn't catch on the back table, there are activity sheets for the kids to take sermon notes or draw pictures or whatever, so if you want to avail yourself of that. Go ahead. So today, we're going to be talking about a bit of a sad topic, but it's an important one. And it's one that I've taught my kids about. Um, Remembering the persecuted. Remembering the persecuted church. Let's pray before we we dive into Hebrews 13.3. God, thank you very much that we can meet together on this beautiful autumn Lord's Day. Thank you very much for the saints, how your word tells us they are the beautiful ones in the land, and all our delight can be in each other. All our delight is in them, says Psalm 16. And I just also thank you that we have your word in our own language, that we can understand it, and that we have so many tools, and in this church, many good teachers of that word. Thank you that we could sing your word together, we can pray using your word according to the will of God, and now we can be grown Um, by your word, and encouraged and propelled. So I just pray those things for Jesus' sake and our good. Amen. November 6th is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And I asked Ben, Pastor Ben, a long time ago, if I could preach on this topic of persecution with the goal of making our church maybe more aware, maybe you're not aware of this topic, and then stirring our hearts to action and identification with this part of the body of Christ. So I hope that you will, in a couple weeks, November 6th, as individuals and as families, take part in the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and that you'll keep our suffering brothers and sisters at the forefront of your remembering prayers. Uh, I think there's in the bulletin a link to opendoorscanada.org. They have tons of toolkits and stuff to help you be involved in the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And they have tons and tons of information on what's going on these days around the world for our brothers and sisters in hard places. So yeah, we're going to spend most of our time picking apart Hebrews 13.3. So you could put a finger or a marker on that passage. Uh, In these Bibles, it's on page 1070. If you don't have a Bible, if you're visiting or you don't have a Bible yet, just take one of these ones home. It's our gift to you. The Bible tells us who God is, what he's done, who we are, what he requires of us, and what he's done in Christ to bring us to himself again. It's basically what the Bible's about. Before we jump into Hebrews, though, I want to kind of set the stage with Matthew 25. Matthew 25. That's on page 880 in the church Bibles. Matthew 25. <clears throat> Matthew 25, 31 to 46 is kind of like Hebrews 13, 3 in the Gospels. 
I think it's a very misunderstood passage, at least me growing up in the church, and now what I know about it, it sure was. It's usually presented as how to love the world, but it's really about, and specifically talking about, how to love the church, how to love the body of Christ. It's about what we do for the church. I'll explain why I think that after we read it. I think it'll make more sense as we read along. So Matthew 25, 31 to 46, page 881. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he's going to sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate them one from another, just as the shepherd shepherds the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the, or from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger take you in without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And then the king will answer them. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers and sisters, as he points to those on his right, you did for me. Then he'll also say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you? When do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And then he'll answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. They will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So growing up, I usually heard that passage described as an explanation for like prison ministries or getting rid of poverty or soup kitchens, those sorts of things, which are good things. We should do those, but that's not what this text is talking about. I usually saw this text growing up presented as how to love my neighbor, but it's really talking about how to love the church. Jesus transports us to a scene where It's the final judgment, and he's in the middle, and the sheep are on the right, and the goats are on the left. And he says, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, these ones here, you did for me. The sheep are his brothers and sisters. The sheep are his people. The sheep are the church, and the church is Jesus' body. So part of how people are going to be judged in the end is actually how they treated Jesus' mistreated and beaten body. So this passage is about ministering to the hurting church. When we pray for them, we're ministering to them. When we even give somebody who needs it in the church a cup of cold water, Jesus says we will not lose our reward. When we visit hurting and dying saints in the hospital or give food to the struggling single mom who's just trying to cling to Christ, 
Jesus says we visited him. If you have a love for suffering people in the body, you have a love for Jesus. Will you put your life on the line for me? Jesus asks. You will not lose your reward, is his promise. So with that mindset, that thinking, that stage setting, what sort of remembering is being talked about in this verse, in Hebrews 13.3? Let's read it. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. That's the ESV version. I just like that translation. I like how they translated the second half of the verse. Um, They didn't do the translation work for us as our Bibles and the church did. So that's why I chose this one. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Like, is it just, what kind of remembering? Just recollection? Like, remember the fact is true that there's Christians in prison today? Well, is there any good or use in that kind of remembering? No, it can't possibly be talking about just recollection. What kind of remembering? What sort of goal is in view with this remembering? Well, I think there's three parts, three parts of remembering. They give us an idea of what kind of remembering it is. I'll list them, then we'll walk through them. So the first one is intercession. You have them in your bulletin there, I think. Intercession on their behalf. Praying to God on their behalf. Uh, Sending them strength from across the world or across a province. Whatever it may be. Intercession. Identification. Identification with them. To stand with them. To not let them feel alone. And then intentionality. Intentionality in our own lives. So we're going to look at intercession, identification, intentionality. So intercession. We are to remember them in such a way, like call to mind constantly, so as to obey the command of Paul to be praying continually. If you have them always in your mind, you'll be praying continually for the persecuted, just even with a thoughtful remembrance of them. And the love of intercession, not the love of doing it, but the love of the love of the loving act of intercessing, if that's a word, is fueled by remembrance. It's fueled by remembrance. Because if we don't call them to mind, our heart won't remain fervent in prayer toward them. Remembrance is the fuel of the love of intercession. And I know for us, like there's not many people going to prison in Canada or the US for being a Christian. There's some, especially in the last couple of years, there were some who really stood out and people wanted them quiet. And for various reasons, they end up going to prison. But most Christian prisoners are actually like across the ocean. Well, intercession is the way that we visit their cell. That's how we get there. That's how we obey Jesus in Matthew, of visiting them in prison. Intercession is the way that in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, you visited me. Of course, if we can physically go, we should physically go. Matthew is talking about, specifically about physical going, but if we can't, as many of us can't, then we enter their cells through the power of the Holy Spirit by prayer. But if we don't pray for them, if we're not going to their cell through prayer, what does that mean in Matthew? Well, Jesus would say, you didn't visit me in prison. I remember, this is about physically going, but 
I remember hearing the testimony of persecuted Christians concerning people from the West coming to visit them. Some people, specifically in the West, would argue, like, it's a waste of resources to go all the way to Africa or all the way to Arab countries just to visit and pray for persecuted Christians. Like, we could save all that plane money of getting people there and just send them way more aid. What are we doing? But the believers in those faraway countries said, we do appreciate your help and your aid. It does help us. But what we really desire is your love. When you come all the way over here to to see us and to know us and talk with us and pray with us, we know you love us. And we're encouraged that we really aren't forgotten. So sending money is helpful, they said, but we know you love us and we're your brothers and sisters when you come to see our faces. So again, if we can go, if we, and if any of you have opportunity to go to a Christian prisoner, you should go. But if we can't, we must intercede. Because prayer is the way that every door is open. Every door is open through prayer. Prayer is the way that we get into closed countries like North Korea. Prayer is how we visit the Christian prisoner and send them strength. Prayer is how we comfort the Christian sister who's in a forced Muslim marriage. So church, we must regularly go to them in prayer. I hope, we, I hope you get involved on November 6th in the International Day of Prayer, but regular intercession is how we regularly go to them. And there's something coming on North America, and we need to stick together. When we start being thrown in prison for being Christians, if we already have this heart and this mindset fostered in us by interceding for the persecuted church, then we'll be ready to run to each other's aid when it starts happening to us. It's a good way in peacetime of preparing for wartime, kind of. So one goal of remembrance is intercession. The second goal of remembering is identification, identification with them. I was looking on the internet for how diamonds are made, and I found varying things. Basically, it seems that diamonds are made with intense and immense pressure and heat. That's exactly what persecution is to the church. It's intense and immense pressure and heat. And it, it purifies the church. I couldn't find what diamonds are made out of. I thought they were made out of coal, like before they become a diamond thought they were made of coal, but apparently that's not true. That's just like a fable or something. But some foul dirtiness deep in the earth, whatever it is, by intense pressure and heat becomes a diamond. Well, the same thing happens with the church. Persecution cleanses the church and makes a diamond out of her. And consider this, this is a byproduct of persecution. If people in the church are not legit, if they're not really in this, if there's some that haven't been washed by the blood of the Lamb, well, when their freedom or their life starts coming on the line, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to leave. That's what fakers do. Fakers leave. Brothers and sisters stay. That's the heart that God has put in us. That's the supernatural love that the Holy Spirit has given each Christian, each true Christian for each other. Dying for one another even. Fueled by Philadelphia which is a God-given love for brothers and sisters, that familial love. Well, that will cleanse the church, cleanse it of its dross. You can see this separation in Acts also. 
uh, when the Holy Spirit struck down Ananias and Sapphira for lying to him. There was great fear among the people. And a bunch of them separated. They were kind of like, whoa, okay, whoa, I don't want any part of this. I thought the Christian thing was cool, but I don't want any part of that. That's scary. What's going on here? Well, that was, that was God cleansing the church in a different way, right? It wasn't through persecution. He was actually the prime supplier of the pressure and heat. But what happened? This is the point. What happened? Well, there remained a core group that stuck together, and everybody else stood aloof. They, would, they separated themselves. They wouldn't, they wouldn't align with the church. They didn't want to be connected to that. But the children of God stood as one. So false professors stand apart, but the children of God stand together. And that's in the whole book of Hebrews, actually. That's like a major theme all throughout it. It's all about true faith on the one hand, false faith or apostasy on the other. The whole book is about that. So are we going to stick with the people of God? Are we going to stick true to Christ? Or are we going to stand aloof? Are we going to try and protect ourselves by separating when these sorts of things come on us? But Jesus says it's not protecting yourself when you stand aloof. Because he said whoever loves their life will lose it. So we stand as one. So church, let's, let's remember the persecuted in such a way as to stand with them and identify with them. Say, so, yeah, I'm in that boat. So now the third goal of remembering. So we've had intercession, a little look at that, a little look at identification. The third type, intentionality. And by that I mean intentionality in our own lives. I have a few resolutions that I try to do. And I'm always, you know, having to ask God for forgiveness because I don't do them. But one of them, one of the ones that usually comes to my mind is to contemplate daily the death of the martyrs. Why, why would I want to do that? Why would someone want to think about the death of the martyrs every day? Well, the reason that I want to keep the death of my brothers and sisters at the forefront of my mind is because it's, it's near impossible nearly impossible, to waste your life. If you're thinking about the victorious dead of years gone by and the suffering church of today, like it takes away the triviality of our North American lives. Like if you think about the death of the martyrs, are you, are you going to watch that foul movie? Are you going to spend your days in pointlessness? Or... Are you going to make the most of every opportunity and every minute you have as best you can, asking God to increase it? That's what thinking about the martyrs, the death of the martyrs, can do in a person. It's what it's done and doing in me. In our culture, this is something we have to watch out for because this is the water we swim in. Our culture is so trivial and shallow. It doesn't like to think. It thinks it thinks, But it doesn't like to think. It thinks about this far, like, okay, how will I retire? How will I retire? But what about after death? What about after death? Wouldn't a thinking person think, well, this life's about 80 years, 110 if I'm really strong. But then what? Then what? People don't want to think about that today. They've done everything they can to not think about that day and to live as if it'll never happen. People don't have... Therefore, heavy thoughts about God. They don't think about what's to come. Martin Luther has said, there's only two days that matter, this day and that day. 
This day is the day you're living right now. And that day is the day of your death or the day of Jesus' return. Your beliefs about that day will determine how you live in this day. Contemplating the death of the martyrs will make you take that day seriously so that you can live this day intentionally. So remembering the persecuted is for their sake on two accounts, for intercession, for identification, and it's for our sake, for intentionality and holiness in our own lives, like to honor their blood, to honor their sacrifice, to live in their shadow. Persecution is happening today around the world. It's happened through the ages. It happened before Christ. It happened after Christ to the people of God. And it's happened more in the last century than in all of recorded history combined in the last hundred years. So remember, as if in prison with them, and you will not live superficially. Now it says one way to remember is as if we're in prison with them. But there's another angle. There's another angle given in the second half of the verse when it talks about the mistreated. Remember the mistreated because you also are in the body. You're in the body. There's two things that could mean. I thought it was the first one I'm going to share, and then I heard a great sermon, and I really like what he said, so I'll share that one too. It could be either one, I think. So the first one could be proved in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 27. I'm not going to read it now, but 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 27 talks about the body of Christ. How each of us who are in Christ are a part of that body. And whether you're an ear or an egg, an egg, not an egg, a leg. That's why I was going for eye and leg. Or a hand or whatever you are, whatever part you are, we all make up the body. Each member of each local church makes up the body of that church. And each local church makes up the worldwide collective body of Christ. And as members of the body, if you be in the body, then you participate in the collective triumph or pain of the body. That's how a body works. With this topic of the mistreated, to remember the mistreated, since you also are in the body, I think what it's saying is that there's pain in the body and there's brokenness in the body. In the worldwide body, there is immense pain and brokenness in the body. In Afghanistan and Nigeria right now, in North Korea, in Vietnam, in Laos, in Yemen, the list goes on and on. There is immense pain in the body. Now, if I broke my leg and I just said, okay, I broke my leg, but I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to look at it. I'm just going to operate as if I don't have a broken leg. I'm just going to ignore it. How's that going to go for me? Bad. You're right. Very badly. Well, and the same thing. It's the same thing with the body of Christ. We, we can't ignore brothers and sisters who are hurting. But maybe you haven't heard about any of this before. Maybe this message is the first time you've ever heard about persecution and stuff. You're saying to me, I didn't know all this was going on today. Well, now we all do, and now we're accountable. Ignoring pain is irrational. Nobody walks around with an uncasted broken leg saying, I don't care, I'm just going to keep going. If they try that, it won't last long. 
because their leg is going to be like, ah, ah, every step. It affects the whole body. It's going to affect their life. Well, it's the same with the body of Christ. If we, if we ignore the parts of our body, the damaged parts, it's going to hurt our life. It's going to hurt our witness because our hearts are going to become cold and ingrown just thinking about ourselves. We need instead to, to acknowledge this pain exists, do what we can to heal it, pray for it, nurture it, care for it. So that's one possible meaning of in the body. There's also the possibility that it could be just talking about like our body of flesh, our own personal physical bodies. Care for the mistreated since you are also in the body. It could be as straightforward and down to earth as that. You're in a body. You have a body. You got flesh. You're in it. So you know, you could at least imagine. You could imagine what it would be like to be separated from your children or to watch your father and mother die as so many Nigerian children have. You could imagine what it would be like to be in prison. You could at least imagine. You could try to imagine. If you want to, you can because you're in a body. You've known pain. You've known exhaustion. You've known tiredness. You've known loneliness. If you dwell upon those things, remember the pain of them, you could pray effectively and powerfully since you've known what it is to be in a body. You can empathize. True, like I don't think any of us have run for our lives for our witness for Christ, but we can empathize. When Christians are thrown in prison and they are running for their lives, that, that longing for family doesn't just go away. Longing for freedom doesn't just go away. Temptation to sin doesn't just go away. Longing for intimacy with your wife if you're in prison for years, that doesn't just go away. Loneliness is there, and weariness is there, and hunger is there, and isolation is there, etc., etc., etc. They don't just go away. And you could imagine that if you want to. And you could pray effectively through imagining through trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes since you're in a body. So remember, remember and educate yourself since you're in the body and pray with power. We're just going to hear an account uh, now from a, a sister from Syria. Can't remember her name, but they'll say it and then we'll pray for her. So we'll take three minutes or so to pray for Iktimal and the Christians in Syria and Iraq. And then we'll I have a couple more things to end. I just I think I didn't clarify something well in the first service. So it said that 60% of Christians have left Syria and Iraq. So I'm not saying how I'm saying the well, the people of God stand together. They might we might leave. We might protect our families and leave, but we don't say, oh, I have nothing to do with the church. I have nothing to do with Christ. That's the sort of separation I'm saying that a Christian doesn't do. And so I'm not condemning Christians in Syria or Iraq who have left the country. I can see myself making the same decision, but then wanting to know how to help the church and how to stay connected to the church, not stand aloof from it. So sorry if I didn't make that clear earlier. Let's pray for Iktimal and the leaders in Syria and Iraq. 
Father, I want to pray for my sister, Iktimal, and her, her family, and how they've been running from war. There's bullets flying and bombs flying, and, you know, I find it tricky enough sometimes just to get my whole family to church on time, and, and they're having to run all together from such danger. I thank you that, yeah, okay, the war is mostly done, but there's so much aftermath from it, God. I just pray that you would protect them, give them their daily bread. I pray that you would help them, help Ectimal specifically, to help her children cling to Christ in the midst of their danger and trauma and fear, that you would... Show your right arm, how mighty you are to save. And I want to pray also, God, that Syria and Iraq, they need leaders. And you, you asked us to pray to the Lord of the harvest, that you would send out workers into the harvest. And so I am asking you to raise up faithful men who can lead the churches, who are humble and teachable and brave and honest, and that you would raise up women in the church, to be mothers in the church, and mothers to the hurting people there, and to nurture them in the truth as it is in Jesus, that you would raise up these people and build your church again. So much of our, we don't know it probably, but so much of our history, our Christian history, actually comes from what the church did in Syria and Iraq many thousand years ago. And so I just pray that you would raise it up again that what ISIS tried to do, that you would plant your flag back in those countries. Pray this for Jesus' honor and their good and our happiness. Amen. I, just, I think we need to expose ourselves to stuff like this. The Christians are going through it. And just because we're not, should we turn a blind eye to it? I don't think so. And just because our children, our children, thank God, aren't exposed to death and murder and rape and all so, those sorts of things, should we keep them turned away from it? I don't think so. I, I do think, though, in a measured and discerning way, we should share it with our children. I, uh, we often, as a family, intercede together for the persecuted church. They know that these things are happening. I don't think we should be hidden from that sort of stuff. The kids who are going through it, who are in the body, aren't hidden from it. So this morning is, is a call. It's a serious call to every one of us, to get involved with this, to be remembering the persecuted, the imprisoned, the mistreated. But I also wanted to end by remembering reality. Because sometimes when we look at these things, we can be overcome by like hopelessness and sadness and stuff. But, so I want to read two verses from Revelation. Mostly just read them. I won't talk much about them. So we can have a correct view of, of reality. Revelation 12, 11. It says, they conquered him, the dragon or Satan, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. So a correct view of reality is not that the church is being beaten down and, and, and broken and losing this war or anything like that, but rather they have conquered, conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb. By the word of their testimony, because they did not love their lives, even unto death. Like every dead Christian child, 
father, mother, is a nail in Satan's coffin. Every Christian who will hold to their testimony about Jesus, come what may, is an overcomer. Every Christian. That's reality. It's when we lose our confession and we fall away, we stand aloof from Jesus and the church. That's a victory for the enemy. That's treacherous. We're also going to read Revelation 6. This is the last verse or passage. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony that they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe. They were told to rest a little while longer until the number who would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Like God's not out of control. He doesn't have his hands tied in all of this. This is all part of his plan. There's a specific number in his mind of martyrs. And he will avenge. He will avenge every drop of his saints' blood upon the people of this earth. For precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And so as we intercede and as we pray for them, don't don't pray with hopelessness. Don't just pray with despair. This is triumph. Pray that they can stand until death, as so many of them have. I heard one of these brothers say, don't pray for us, pray with us. When you guys pray for us, you're usually praying for our freedom and our ease. You pray mostly that the persecution will end. When you pray with us, you pray that we will cling to Christ through our tribulation and stand firm in the gospel. When you pray with us, you send us real strength to endure, and to do God's will. So, so let's not pray hopelessly. I'm just going to read the third line of the church's one foundation to close the service. I just love what it says. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. If you're in Christ, you're a part of that. And you don't need to wait till martyrdom or something to be a church victorious. You could keep your confession until death, whether you die in a hospital or you die at the end of someone's gun, you can be the church victorious. God bless you, and I hope that you will pick up this call to intercede and to identify with the mistreated and the imprisoned. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.